Lord, we are grateful. We gather together, and in unison, Lord, we proclaim your goodness. We proclaim the resurrected Jesus. He is our hope. He is our life. And Father, we just glorify you and praise you with all that we are. Father, would you use this morning, the worship, the message, the fellowship, God, would you just use all of it to bring yourself glory and honor? God, draw us closer to you. Draw us closer to one another. God, just help us to be about the things that you're about. We just thank you for your love, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for worshiping this morning. Thank you, Matt. John chapter 20 is where we will be this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Easter for most people, I think, or most people in our part of the world is a lot like Christmas. It's a time when we gather with family. We give kind of a passing acknowledgement to the resurrection of Jesus, that Christ has risen. He's risen indeed. But really, if we're honest in our evaluation of, of our lives, Easter tends to be less about an empty tomb and more about our family gatherings. And family gatherings are great, and family gatherings are fun and are necessary and are good. But if we're not careful, we'll idolize our family gatherings over the resurrected Savior. So I, I come to Easter, and, and I love the resurrection, and I love the resurrection because it, it is, for me, a, a life-changing thing. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but why is it that if we're Christians, we absolutely believe that the Bible is inerrant, that it's infallible, that it is the Word of God? Is it because we just decide that's what it is and so we're going to hold to Scripture? Or is there something else that can do that for us? If we profess that this is the Word of God, that it is our authority in life, that it is without error, how is it that we know that that is true? Is it just because that's what our parents or our pastors taught us and then their parents and their pastors taught them that and their parents and their pastors taught them that and it's passed down? Or is there something else that tells us that the Word of God is actually the Word of God? There are lots of answers to that question. The Bible talks about itself, uh, that salvation and the, the power of the gospel applied to our hearts where the Holy Spirit dwells within us, lends us to believe that, that. But for me, one of the most compelling things to argue that the Bible is actually the word of God, that it is actually authoritative over our lives, is that Jesus was raised from the dead. And the way that the Bible records the resurrection of Jesus Christ it is that it is a historical fact that is near impossible to disprove. Even the most hardened skeptics and atheists can't disprove the resurrection. So what I want to do is I want to, to read this passage, and we'll walk through this like we always do, book by book and verse by verse, except we're, we're you know, in the resurrection this morning because it's Easter, and then I'll, we'll walk through these passages, and I'm going to lay out for you exactly what the Lord does with the resurrection and why we can not just trust the whole counsel of God. The whole Bible is authoritative. So let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you that we do get to gather here. God, I thank you that we have a season like Easter, or even in a, a world that's lost, in a culture that largely doesn't care about Christianity much there's still a longing and there's still a desire for people to have truth and to know about Jesus. So 
I pray, God, that you would be with us this morning as we look at your passage of scriptures. Look at John 20 and see exactly what's going on. I pray that you would speak to us, encourage us where we need encouragement, convict us where we need conviction, and grow us in you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. John chapter 20, verse 1. So on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple and the one whom Jesus loved and they said to, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. I want to pause there because I love this part of scripture. I love the way that John records this in the Bible. It makes me smile and laugh the way that he does it. We see Mary Magdalene, and we know from the other gospel accounts, other women go with her to go anoint Jesus' body. They're bringing spices, they're bringing oils and things to place on Jesus' body. See, burials in this, this region were done in a specific way. In this time, were done in a specific way. You would lay on your back, and they would put a cloth from your shoulders down that would cover you, and then on that cross, they would grind up spices they would put oils to cover the smell and then on your head they would have a cloth and it would cover your your face as well there's two separate cloths and so what these women are doing is they're going to try to preserve jesus's body as long as they possibly can that's why they're there when it's still dark it's the earliest they could have gone it had just been the sabbath and they get there, and the stone is rolled away from the tomb. And so immediately, we see Mary's theory. Mary says, somebody has taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they placed him. Her initial response is not, Jesus has been resurrected. It's that his body has been stolen. So who moved it? Who moved the stone? Who moved the body? Uh, it could have been Joseph of Arimathea, who's the one whose tomb Jesus was in. But why would he do this at night? And if he loaned the tomb, then why was he steal the body? It could have been the Roman guard, but they're, they're supposed to protect it. So why would they want to, to do this? What should these women do? Well, they run to Peter, and they run to the apostle, who's the one that Jesus loved, which is what John calls himself in his gospel. He doesn't say the name John. He just refers to himself as, I'm the apostle that Jesus loved, and then there's Peter. And I love this story that Peter and John hear these women, hear Mary Magdalene, and what do they do? A foot race to the tomb. And John makes sure that we know he's faster than Peter. He says, Peter and I run. Oh, sorry, verse 3. So Peter with the other disciple as they were going towards the tomb, and both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John's faster than Peter. So they, they hear Mary Magdalene tell this story. They hear Mary's theory, and so both of them just take off. Verse 5. And stooping in, he, this is John, saw the linen uh, cloth lying there. But he didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there with the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. see Peter and John racing to the tomb. John gets there first, but John doesn't go into the tomb. 
He's outside of it. He's looking around. He sees the cloths that are in there, but he won't go into the tomb. He's kind of trying to figure it out. He's a little bit more standoffish. But then we have the apostle Peter, who uh, <laughs> my favorite description is the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, who just bolts right on into the door, runs into the tomb, and John follows him, and they see the cloths unmoved. Did you catch that? If a grave robber is going to come in and steal the body, then the cloths would have been probably taken. But they're not. And if you're grinding up spices on the body and putting oils on the body to keep it from, from smelling, from corroding, and to help preserve the body, then those would certainly have at least been disturbed, yet they're not. And so they see the clothes. They see the, the, has, the face piece folded up. I've not been a part of a grave robbing game and a gang, and I don't really steal a whole lot of things, maybe a few things every now and then, but not much. But I would imagine if you're stealing, you wouldn't worry about folding the cloth or making sure it's nice and neat. They're just lying there, untouched. And I love this passage. Because we see that that, that Peter goes in, he looks at everything, he examines everything, but then the other disciple who was with him, John, he sees the cloths and he believes. See, Mary Magdalene sees the empty tomb, and she still is like, where's the body at? Peter rushes in. We don't know what he's thinking at the moment. We know John sees the cloths, and we know that John believes, that that's enough for him. He sees the spices that aren't on the ground, strung around. He sees the clothes laying there. He sees that there's no body, that the tomb is opened, and he believes that Jesus is alive. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus was laid, one at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where they have laid him, where you laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So it's Peter and John kind of do their investigation, and then they, they leave. They go back. And we see Mary Magdalene sitting outside the tomb, weeping. If you don't know Mary Magdalene's story, she was uh, saved by Jesus. She, she had seven demons that Jesus cast out of her, and then she just follows the apostles around ministering to them. Her life was about serving Jesus, so when Jesus died in her eyes, in her mind, she lost everything. She lost her hope. She lost her purpose. She lost everything that she had. And so she sees this empty tomb, and she still doesn't get it. She still doesn't understand why the cloths are there, but she just peeks inside and she sees two angels sitting at the head and the foot of the tomb. And they say, uh, she says, where have you taken them? 
But they look at her and say, where, why are you weeping, Mary? And she says, they've, they've taken my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. And then she turns around and we see that she sees Jesus. But she doesn't recognize Jesus. Right, maybe she, she, maybe there's some, some supernatural like identity thing where, where Jesus hides his identity from her like he does with the men on the, the road to Emmaus. Or, or may, maybe Mary is just like single-minded wiring where she can focus on one thing. Bryn and I are wired this way. That's what Bryn and I do. Morgan surprised me by having some friends from Spearman come visit us one weekend. I will not ever forget this. And she told us like... Morgan gave us like big old long list, nothing norm, abnormal, just a long list of things to do. So I'm in my mind, I'm like, we've got all these things to do, places to go. That was my intention, and that was what I had in my mind to do when this family, the Knowltons, walk in the back door. And my first thought was, oh, no, there's no way I can get this list of things done now. It took me way too long to realize that Morgan had been lying to me to keep me at the house and to make sure that I was there when the Knowltons came in. That was our weekend plan, was hanging out with, with them. I mean, it took probably 30 minutes before I realized what was going on. Maybe that's Mary. She's decided the body was taken. She can't figure out what's going on. She's got this single-minded focus up until this, this pivotal moment when she sees Jesus. She thinks Jesus is the gardener. <laughs> where have you put Jesus' body? If you'll tell me where, I'll go get it. And Jesus is like, right here. She does not know who Jesus is. Jesus speaks to her, and she does not pick up with his voice that it's Jesus. It is only after Jesus says, Mary, that it clicks. man she's been worried about weeping outside of the tomb the one she was going to preserve his body because he was dead she cannot put together that jesus is resurrected until jesus looks at her and says her name mary and she says teacher see i love that a part of this story is is it's jesus meeting us meeting people at different places Peter barges in, sees what's going on, is seeming like, okay, Jesus is resurrected. John has to look at the clothes, has to walk his way in in his own different way, yet even Mary has to be approached by Jesus, that he meets them where they're at. See, the resurrection for them was, was hard to come by. And the Apostle Paul talks about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse, uh, I want to read verses 1 through 3. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, in which by you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. So what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's quoting what is probably one of the oldest hymns ever written. There's a chance that this is what Paul is saying to these people in Corinth, that I taught you about Jesus, is this hymn that was written, it could have been within a year of Jesus' resurrection. He's saying, this is what I was taught, and this is what I taught you, and then you should be teaching others if you truly believed this thing. And so the first thing that Paul says is that Jesus died. Undebatable. There is not anyone that argues that Jesus did not die. 
It is a historical fact. Pilate is a well-known historical figure. There's no dispute that he had Jesus killed. The New Testament letters give powerful evidence to this, and there's extra-biblical sources that point this out too. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says it. Tacitus and Pliny are Roman historians, and they say that Pilate was alive and killed Jesus too. But that's not where Paul finishes. Verse 4, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So this hymn, this, this creed that, that Paul is quoting is saying, Jesus died, and then also Jesus is still alive. He was resurrected. And how does Paul ground his belief in this? He goes, I've seen him. And he goes, not just me. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to all of the apostles. And if that's not enough people, he appeared to 500 people at one point in time, most of whom are still alive. And so if you don't believe Paul, go ask them. He appeared to James. James is Jesus' half-brother. is true because Jesus appeared to me. Do you see it? If we're believers in Jesus Christ, if we believe that God's word is actually God's word, then the resurrection is something that we cling to tightly. It is undisputed that something happened to Jesus three days after he died. Even the most ardent atheists will argue, would say, that you have to agree that something happened to Jesus after he died three days later. And the Bible itself is the most reliable, just from a purely historic standpoint, document on it. Fragments upon fragments of the Bible, thousands of them have been found that verify that this is the story that it tells. Some people that, that don't believe in Jesus have argued that he just passed out on the cross and that he, he woke up in the tomb. And so then he rolled the stone away and left. That's ridiculous. He had nails through his hands, nails through his feet. He was dehydrated. He had 39 lashes on his back, yet somehow a little nap helped him feel better. So he woke up, rolls this 2,000-pound stone away, and then is able to sneak around and nobody see him. It's ridiculous. Some people say that the disciples moved Jesus' body and then they lied about it. And if that's the case, there's several issues. One, the Gospels are written too differently. If you're going to fake a story, they would line up a little bit. Like, you know, like Mary Magdalene here is the one who finds it, but then other accounts, it's this group of women. They would have made sure that they lined up, probably just have one Gospel. You also would never have women be the first ones to find Jesus' resurrected uh, tomb, the, the empty tomb. At this point in time, they were not, women were not considered legal authorities as witnesses. So if you're going to make this up, you'd have men that would be the ones to find it, not women. Also, the character change that takes place in the disciples. Listen, church history tells us every apostle was killed, put to death, proclaiming that Jesus rose from the grave with the exception of the apostle John who wrote this. And instead, John was exiled to the island of Patmos where God gave him the vision for revelation. And let's not forget that, Jesus, that, that Peter denied Christ three times just three days earlier. And one of the people that Peter denied Christ to was a little girl. 
He's not brave. If he's making up this story, he would have caved before death. Yet history tells us that Peter watched his wife get crucified and then he got crucified upside down because he didn't find him worthy to be crucified by Christ. Thomas wanted to see the nail marks in Jesus' hands. Can you imagine if he made it up but he had to have that kind of proof that Jesus was there that he would hold strong until the end when his life is under threat? None of them cracked. We also know that hundreds of people saw Jesus resurrected. You don't have mass hallucinations where everybody sees the exact same thing. Others say, well, they didn't steal the body, they just went to the wrong tomb. Or the, the Romans took the body and they put it in a mass grave located nearby. It makes no sense. The Romans killed Jesus because he claimed to be a king. And then all of a sudden, if you have these hundreds of people claiming they've seen Jesus resurrected and that he's bringing this kingdom of God, Rome would want to quell that quickly. So what they would do was go get the body. If the body was there, they would produce the body. They'd say, here's your king Jesus. Y'all are worshiping a false god. Yet they don't. I'll tell you why. It wasn't in the tomb. If you're going to make up stories about Jesus being resurrected, you wouldn't do it the way that the Gospels have it written. Like I said at the beginning of the sermon, the resurrection for me is the proof that the Bible is the word of God. Because if the resurrection, according to the Bible, is true, then all of the Bible And if all of the Bible is true, then it means that this is God's word for us, which is authoritative over our life. We do what it says to do. We don't do what it says we don't do. And we live under the umbrella of the word of God. See, the resurrection proves that Jesus did what he said he was going to do. That he died in our place that he came to save sinners like you and me. That he came to create a people who are being molded and being shaped into his image, who will physically be resurrected at the second coming of Jesus, and if we're believers, then we'll be ushered into the complete and the full presence of Christ into an eternity. See, what happens sometimes, especially in our part of the world, because the Bible and Jesus and Christianity are kind of meshed with our culture so much and for so many years that instead of seeing Jesus as God, what we tend to see Jesus as is almost like a lucky rabbit's foot. Or, or, or moral stories or tales that if we'll follow most of the premises of the Bible or if we'll do most of the things that Jesus says to do, if we'll, we'll mind our P's and we'll mind our, our Q's, if we'll, we'll not cuss and we'll come to church and we do the right things, then life is going to be better for us. And if we don't do those things, then life isn't better for us. But if we treat Jesus like that, then we treat Jesus the same way we treat science or education or politics or any other source of authority outside of the Bible. Jesus is more, the Bible is more than just rules for us. Certainly there's rules in Scripture, certainly there's laws in Scripture, but by and large what the Bible is telling us is God's plan from creation to now and, how, and, and beyond to the future of how God's going to save people. He doesn't save us because we're great. He doesn't save us because we're awesome. He doesn't save us because he needs us. He saves us because it displays his glory and his mercy and his grace 
far more than anything else. So what we see is if we follow Jesus, our lives look a whole lot different than if we follow other sources of authority. If you follow other sources of authority, you will probably get respected. You might even be revered. But if you follow Jesus, what he tells us is you will take up your cross, you will follow him, and you will die. I've got a buddy who's a pastor. He always says, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Look at those in the Bible that are shaped by the resurrection. Look at Mary, Peter, John, Paul, all of which carried a whole lot of baggage to Jesus. And all of them recognize without the crucifixion and the resurrection, if the resurrection is fake, that there could be pity. But if Jesus really did die, and if Jesus really was raised from the grave, then there really is hope. Have you ever thought about why God opened the tomb? why the stone was rolled away. We know later on in, in the Gospel of John that Jesus shows up in a room with the apostles when the door was locked. And we know that from looking at the clothes that Jesus, the, the cloths that were on Jesus, he, he raised from the dead without messing up any of the things. that He just went, went through them. Have you ever wondered why the stone in front of the tomb was rolled away? It wasn't so Jesus could get out. It was so we could look in. And we could see what God did. We can see who God is. That the same Jesus who hung on the cross three days later, taking the wrath of God on our behalf if we're believers in Jesus Christ, is now no longer dead. And we can look at Jesus and we can see the hurt and the pain and the struggle and the suffering that he faced, that he bore for us. And we can look in the tomb and we can look at our sin and we can look at our struggle and we can look at our hurt and we can look at our pain and we can look at our suffering and we can bring it to the cross. We can bring it to the tomb and we can realize that Christ is the resurrected Savior. And if the resurrection is real, then it means he takes those things for us. That they're not ours to bear. All of those who come to Jesus early on have their own struggles that they bring. Their sin, their hurt, their pain, and what do they do? They race to the empty tomb. They don't hide those things. They don't mask them to try to make Jesus like them a little bit more or whoever else likes them. They run to the tomb. And they bring everything with them. They're good. They're bad. And they lay them before the resurrected Savior. See, what this teaches us is that the Word of God is authoritative for us. But it's not just this burden to be beat down with. We used to always joke that God's word hurts, and then we would just slap each other with our Bibles in, in junior high and high school. I lived a weird childhood. But it doesn't leave us there. Jesus rises from the grave to 
three days later. There is hope and there is grace in the gospel. But that hope and that grace doesn't come by sweeping our sins under a rug and pretending like they don't happen. That hope and that grace doesn't come by pretending like we're not in pain or that we're strong enough to take on all these things by ourselves. That hope and that grace comes when we run to Jesus with it all. And we lay it before God trusting that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the scripture is our loan of authority. See, if the resurrection is true, then the Bible is true. And if the Bible is true, then there is gospel hope for you and I even today. Jesus died so that we might live, and he offers salvation to you and I now, and we receive that salvation through faith in the grace of Jesus Christ. Let me ask, what in your life needs to be brought under the submission of God's word? See, if we read the Bible and there's no conviction, listen, I'm going to break your heart here. We're not perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We sin. We do wrong things. So if we read the Bible and there's no conviction, then one of two things is happening. Either we're not really reading the scripture or we're pretending like we don't have any sin. So what in your life needs to be brought under the submission of the word of God? What sin do you need to repent of? What what acts or behaviors do you need to turn over to the Lord? I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I don't say that to make you feel shamed. I don't say that to, to place a burden on you. I say it because the resurrection is true. That grace is available and abundant in Jesus Christ. Whether that be the first time for you or the millionth time. Grace comes to those who need it. And those who need grace repent and turn to Jesus Christ, the living Savior. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. God, I thank you that there is a hope of the resurrection, that there is a hope. But God, you don't just leave us in our sin. You don't just leave us in our pain. You don't just leave us in our our suffering to figure it out by ourselves and hopefully find some way to work ourselves up to you. No, God, you come to us. And you live the perfect life that we are supposed to live. And you die the death that we deserve to die. And if we believe in you, if there's faith that, you, that we have in you for the grace that you lavish on us, you save us. Not because of who we are, not because of what we bring, but because you are good and you are glorious. So God, this Easter, I pray that you would help us to recognize that Jesus is so much more than just a tool for us to use. That the Bible is true. All of the Bible is true. It is your word for us. And where your word goes out, life happens. So I pray that you would convict us, God, where we need conviction, where we're running from you, where we're, we're off the path, we're not lined up with you, that you would convict us of those things and that we would be quick to repent of them and turn and to run back to you. Whatever things, God, that we need encouragement from where we're struggling or we're hurting, that you would give us that encouragement and that we would glory in Jesus. It's in your name we pray.